1: This is a place where people gather to think freely, to question the dominant narratives of our time, to own their own worldview, and to learn to trust themselves. So I welcome you to the show, whether you're a long-time listener or first-time wrong thinker. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, HSLAMMO.com, MonticelloCollege.org, and and SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. Got a lot of great stuff to talk about today, and I'm I'm I'm. There's going to be a theme at least to this hour of the program, and it's uh, who do you take seriously? Now I want you to think around, uh, think about the people that you have around you, and uh, I want you to notice there are a lot of folks out there in society today who demand you should defer to me, you should take me seriously. I think uh, most of the ones I see, and this is because I spend probably more time than I should on Twitter. Uh, there's a, an account called, uh, I think it's called Libs of TikTok, and it's just video after video of uh, primarily their lectures from from people who are, um, how can I put this, very self-centered, who are explaining why I was misgendered and this is why I'm angry at the world. No one will give me the respect that I so clearly deserve, and I mean, I'm not trying to be unkind when I say this, but it's... It's a freak show. It's just, it's unbelievable. And what's, what's most difficult, at least for me, to get my mind around is the anger that drives that entitled sense of, you will respect me. You know, I've, I've learned over time that the people who most strongly demand that they be respected probably are behaving in ways that are disrespectful, not just to themselves, but to, to people around them. Respect is not something you can demand of other people. In fact, uh, respect is something that, curiously enough, is commanded by the way that you conduct yourself. What that means is, if, you, if you're living in a way that uh, commands the respect of others, they can't help but respect you because of how they see you behave, how they see you treat others, the way that you carry yourself through life. So I'll give you an example. Um, I, sometimes I get a little bit uh, weary with, with the idea that, oh, there's someone in uniform. I have to respect them. I mean, there are people out there in uniform who are doing very respectable things. But I do not mistake a state-issued costume or a government-issued costume as immediate qualification for, dang it, I have to respect that person. It's just it's it's kind of a thing that's been ingrained into us that, uh, you know, anybody who's gone up, thank you for your service, which, by the way, you should be doing to truckers more and more, (laughs) at least the ones who've been standing for freedom. But having said that, I was driving along through Salt Lake City one day and uh, noticed a a state trooper. In fact, if I'm remembering right, it was I believe it was a, a female trooper out there in uniform on the side of the road, kneeling down, helping change a flat tire for a vehicle that had suffered a flat. And it wasn't because of her uniform. It was because of what she was doing. When I'm sure, look, I'm sure she could have found a speeder to go chase or she could have found something other to do. But this trooper was helping this motorist and it commanded my respect. It made me go, wow, that's, that's a pretty stand-up move because she didn't have to. At least I'm not aware of anything that, uh, you know, says, you know, if you have a flat tire, a cop has to stop and help you change it. This trooper's behavior absolutely commanded my respect because it was a perfect example of service for another human being. So that's that's one small example. Now, about the people who say, well, you should take me seriously. Oh, I've got an awesome essay here from Paul Rosenberg that explains how the people you can really trust, the people who can who should be taken seriously, are the people who understand that suffering for righteousness is what makes a person legit. The actual title of this essay is, It's Suffering for Righteousness That Makes You a Man. But he quickly says in the first sentence, or a proper woman, of course. Now he says, up until political correctness enfeebled the West, we used to talk about things that separated the men from the boys. And however poorly the phrase may have been used, It had a legitimate point. It's one thing to be male. It's quite another to be a proper man. The same obviously applies to women. It's one thing to be female, and it's quite another to be a proper woman. So he says, I use the male version of the phrase because most women's roles were different or at least necessarily different in the days before reliable birth control. But on whichever side of the biological divide you find yourself, it's suffering for righteousness that confirms you as legitimate a solid adult, as someone to be taken seriously. Now, here's what that means. He says there are all sorts of ways to make a show of being a legitimate adult. You can be a frightening brute. You can display your intellectual prowess. You can hold up your wealth, status, or beauty, or you can threaten others with power that stands ready to avenge you. But none of those things make you a real man or a real woman because they're shows They're not substance. They're ornamental plumage. Paul Rosenberg says, Becoming a real man requires you to suffer for righteousness. Not merely to suffer, because everyone suffers, but to suffer because of your personal moral devotion to something. That proves there's solid ground in your soul. So, either you've taken a serious risk, suffered for it, and held your position, or the rest of us can't be sure of your solidity. Either you've suffered for something you thought was right, which, while uh, punishers didn't, or you haven't. It's kind of an either-or proposition. So he says, let me restate that for clarity. Until you've suffered for righteousness, there's no incontestable reason for the rest of us to take you as a serious adult. And he says, more than that, you have to suffer as an individual. You can be one of many who make a similar choice, but you have to face personal consequences, not collective consequences. And until you do, he says, the rest of us have no way of being sure. Going along with a group, even a minority group, is not the same thing as making a costly individual choice. And until that happens, the rest of us lack a reason to trust you as an individual. Now, the word righteousness is going to throw some people off. And he says, look, being right isn't exactly the point. Paul Rosenberg says, it may seem that my use of the word righteousness makes being proven right a necessity, but that's not actually the case. He says, the core of this is having the strength to do what you believe is the right thing in the face of contrary power. If, believing yourself to be right, you make a hard choice and suffer for it, you've shown yourself to be a man or a woman, even if you later learned that you were wrong. What needs to be demonstrated is an honest and strong soul, not factual precision, precision, rather. And he says the best explanation I know of this came from Thomas Jefferson, who said, Your own reason is the only oracle given you by heaven, and you are answerable not for the rightness, but the uprightness of the decision. Do you see the difference? It's the uprightness and courage of what you do that matters. Your uprightness is the fundamental, not your rightness. Now, the truth, of course, is that people willing to suffer for righteousness are far more likely to be right than those who follow the crowd. But that's not the core issue. So, do hard times make hard men? You know, that's a belief that's been around for a while. But he says, I tend not to hold that belief because our development doesn't actually require darkness. And also because brutally hard times turn boys and girls into broken men and women. If we rely on brutal times, we doom ourselves to heavy damage. Still, there's some truth to this because hard times force people into suffering for what is right. And we're seeing this right now. So the question becomes, who is suffering for righteousness right now? And I like some of the examples he gives here. Homeschoolers have been suffering that way for quite some time. They've been called everything, made the butt of endless jokes and barbs and worse. Likewise, Bitcoiners. They've been called fools, suckers, crazies, and so on at length. Things are changing a bit now, but he says in both of these arenas, courage was required. If you couldn't muster it, you fell away. And we're now seeing the same and worse directed at people who don't want the quasi-vaccines that officialdom is demanding. These people are being broadly and profoundly discriminated against. Huge numbers of them have been fired from their jobs, forbidden from stores and restaurants, fined and threatened with jail time. These people are suffering for righteousness. They are showing solid ground in their souls and it doesn't matter whether or not the statistics bear them out five years from now. The fact that they are standing for what they think is right and bearing personal costs is enough. And by the way, he says the same thing is true for the protesting truckers. They are taking risks for what they believe, making themselves respectable men and women. This moment is creating people who are solid. They will certainly continue making errors, he says we all do, but they're not to be confused with empty conformists. You can see why I love this essay. We'll come back to it just the other side of these commercial messages.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I'm in the middle of sharing an essay with you from Paul Rosenberg, who has written many things that I think are worth contemplation This may be one of his finest because it is so applicable in the moment in which we are living. So I'm going to get back to it in just a moment. A quick shout-out here to lifesavingfood.com. Just a reminder, food storage, always a good idea. I mean, you never know. There could be, I don't know, some kind of a general strike. There could be, oh, I don't know, a freedom convoy. There could be a slowdown or a shutdown in the supply chain. Just hypothetically, of course, not trying to scare anybody. But if you have Food storage. If you have things in place to augment your self-reliance, you have options. And when you purchase the food storage through lifesavingfood.com, you get a 20% discount, free shipping, and no sales tax. So there's a little added incentive for my listeners to, you know, jump on that opportunity. There's a link in the show notes at thebryanhideshow.com. Feel free to click it and go shopping. So I'm sharing this article here from Paul Rosenberg, which this, this one just speaks to me, just because I'm seeing so many examples of people who have learned that it's suffering for righteousness that makes you a credible adult. And I think one of the most important takeaways, as mentioned in the last segment, a person doesn't even have to be right factually in order to show that metal in their soul by suffering for righteousness, the uprightness of their stance, their willingness to suffer individual consequences by swimming against the tide or by by defying the masses—that's what makes them a good person. And Paul Rosenberg finishes up here by asking, "What was your rite of passage?" Think about that. Maybe it hasn't happened yet. Maybe your your moment of you know testing and proof. Is, is still at hand or still, uh, you know, about to approach. I think a lot of you have experienced it, though. I think you've probably been through something that, that uh, was an opportunity for suffering for righteousness. He says it's a very pure rite of passage, and we need more such rites, not only to prove things to others, but this is the important part, to prove them to ourselves. In other words, you need to know that you've done the hard things. You've suffered for them and stood to the challenge. And while Rosenberg says, yes, other people need to see that in us, but we also need to see that in ourselves. Rites of passage are necessary. But in order to be a rite of passage, it has to be hard. They have to cost you in some significant way. Now, in a perfect world, things might be different, but this isn't a perfect world. And if you can't think of your own passages, you better start taking the question seriously. He says, being a nonconformist comes with a price attached but paying it transforms us into something more. It's a price we all need to pay and hopefully sooner rather than later. So he concludes by saying suffering is not a virtue of itself, but suffering for righteousness illuminates the fact that we are more than placeholders and followers, that we are upright men and women to be taken seriously. I don't know. I I probably, I get it. If, If you're kind of recoiling and going, Oh, I don't know, Brian, You seem kind of into this suffering thing. you a masochist or something? No, I'm not. I don't like suffering. (laughs) I try to avoid it wherever I can. But I think Paul Rosenberg is absolutely 100% correct when he says that when you suffer, standing for what you believe is right, and you remain firm in your convictions... And by the way, that doesn't mean your mind is closed. It just means you have you have sorted things out to the point you are willing to commit to a truth, even if it's unpopular, even if it uh, puts you in in jeopardy of losing your job or having your good name spoken, you know, poorly by people around you. For some people, it may even mean being arrested. Are you willing to do it? Because if you are willing to do those things, then guess what? the world will take you more seriously. I'm going to give you a couple examples of this. I know that Ammon Bundy, for for a lot of people, that's a trigger word, you know, Ammon Bundy, and, you know, some people's knee, jerks, what? (laughs) And in fact, you just say the name Bundy, depending on, uh, you know, where you are, it will really set some people off. I'm going to use Ammon just as an example because uh, he is a friend, and he's someone who I think epitomizes the willingness to suffer for the sake of righteousness. Now, you think back a few years ago when uh, he and others occupied the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge. I'll admit, at the time, I was like, what the hell is he doing? Why would he do something like this? I did not understand the dynamic behind it. And it's only in later years that I've, I've come to see more clearly the big picture. Which, by the way, if, if everything you know about uh, either the Bundys or about uh, the Malheur Wildlife Refuge, if all you know came through mainstream media sources there's a really good chance that you are lacking a lot of crucial information. That's not, you know, your fault. I'm just saying when you have the opportunity to go to the source, you really should go to the source because you'll get a much more complete picture. And there are people who've gone to Ammon who, you know, they may still not agree with him, but at least they're like, this guy is not the monster. This is not the attention-seeking terrorist that, you know, the media tells me that he is. And when the wildlife refuge occupation ended, Lavoy Finicum was dead. There were dozens of people arrested. You know, it was it was a huge counterterrorism operation, according to the U.S. government. Except it wasn't. But nonetheless, I remember uh, <laughs> it was a, a friend who's now blocked me on Facebook. But he uh, he had said, "Well, was it worth it? Was it worth it?" Ammon? This was especially after Lavoy was killed. You know, and it was just you know trying to condemn him, and and I tried to reach out to this guy and say, "Hey." You know, it's it's a little bit early to be asking this because this this is not over yet. And uh, he let me have some good old-fashioned Navy uh, profanity and blocked me and, okay, go in peace. Go on, Rob. <laughs> go with God. But I remembered his question. Well, was it worth it? And then I watched a reporter ask Ammon Bundy that very question as he sat there in uh, the, the holding uh, facility, the jail, there in Multnomah, and he was asked, well, was it worth it, Ammon? And I'll never forget Ammon's answer as he sat there, again, in his, you know, jail overalls and just, uh, you know, with with the whole weight of the federal government about to fall on him and members of his family. He thought for a moment and he said, as hard as it has been, yes, it was worth it. And then I remember him saying that uh, the day is going to come when we are going to be free. And when it happens, he says, it will be very clear that it was the Lord's hand that caused it to happen. Now, I'm going to tell you, at that time, I was kind of like, well, good for him for keeping the faith. But to my mind, there was no possible way that he and other members of his family and those who were with him at the refuge would not be spending the rest of their natural lives in prison. I just couldn't see any other way. But I felt the conviction that he had. As he said this, and this was just at the beginning of nearly two years of sitting in jail, being treated like a piece of property before he could even go to trial. And yet when he went to trial there in Oregon, shockingly, the jurors saw through the government's case and acquitted Ammon and six others. Yeah. And then when he went to trial in Las Vegas for the the. Things that happened in April of 2014 at Bundy Ranch. Same thing happened. Now, he suffered every step of the way. And some of the deepest suffering wasn't just, oh, well, I'm in jail. It was the separation from his family, the fact that his kids were growing up without him, and the fact that he may not have a chance to be a part of his kids' life. But he's a free man today. He's running for governor of Idaho. His family is free. His dad is back ranching, you know, where they were before. It wasn't easy. But because of their suffering, even their harshest critics can't say that, well, you know, they've never had any skin in the game or they never really, you know, had to pay a price. Oh, they paid a price. And yet they were delivered. And I'll add, when he says they were delivered by God's hand, he's not kidding. I felt God's spirit in that courtroom when the judge dismissed with prejudice the case against them. Powerful stuff. You want to be taken seriously? You have got to be willing to suffer for righteousness. So be ready for it.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Again, you're going to notice there's a bit of a theme in this hour of the show. And that theme is essentially if you are going to make the impact that you were born to make on this world. At some point, you're going to have to suffer for righteousness, now, that doesn't mean become insufferably righteous. That just means if, if, you, if you find yourself in a situation where your, your, your principles are at stake and it appears that you are standing alone, you know, polite society's like, well, you can't be part of us if you believe that way or if you're not willing to do what we tell you to do or what everybody else is doing, that's a hard place to be. I know of what I speak. I've been there myself. I'll save that story for another time. But if you want a good another example of what real courage looks like in our time let's talk about tennis superstar Novak Djokovic and I hope I'm saying his name correctly I I am, am not a I don't follow tennis so I'm I'm not fluent in the the names they're almost as bad as hockey players sometimes but uh, Novak Djokovic defended his freedom to choose against COVID-19 inoculation in an interview that he did with BBC back on uh, I think it was uh, Tuesday where he says he's always supported the freedom to choose what to put into your body. I want you to listen to his answer to this interviewer. Have you received any vaccination against COVID? I have not. Why?
2: I understand that uh, and support fully uh, the freedom to choose, you know, whether you want to get vaccinated or not. And uh, I have not uh, spoken about this before and I have not disclosed my medical Record and uh, my vaccination status because uh, I, I had the right to keep that private and discreet. But as I see, there's a lot of uh, wrong conclusions and assumptions out there. I think it's important to speak up about that um, and 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 justify certain things. Right. So I um, I was never against uh, uh, vaccination. I understand that globally. Everyone is trying to put a big effort into handling this virus and, and seeing, a, hopefully, a, a, an end soon to this virus. And vaccination is probably the biggest effort that was made. Probably half of the planet was, was vaccinated. And I fully respect that. But I've always uh, represented and, and always supported uh, the freedom to choose what you put into your body. And for me, that is essential. It's really the principle of... of understanding what is right and what is wrong for you. And me as an elite professional athlete, I've always carefully reviewed, assessed, everything that comes in from the supplements, food, the water that I drink or sports drinks, anything really that comes into my body as a fuel. Based on all the informations that I got, uh, I, I decided not to take the vaccine uh, as of today. So do you have, as of today, Yes. I keep my mind open because we are all, we are all trying to find collectively uh, a best possible solution to end COVID, right? I mean, no one really wants to be in this kind of situation that we've been in collectively for, for two years. I'm part of the a sport, a very global sport that is played every single week in a different location. So, you know, I understand the consequences of my decision. And one of the consequences of my decision was not going to Australia, and I was prepared not to go. And I understand that not being vaccinated today, I, you know, I'm unable to travel to most of the tournaments at the moment. And, and that's the price you're willing to pay? I, that, that is the price that I'm willing to pay.
1: Ultimately, are you prepared to forego the chance to be the greatest player that ever picked up a racket, statistically? because you feel so strongly about this jab?
2: Yes. I do. But as things stand, if this means that you miss the French Open, is that a price you'd be willing to pay? Yes, that is the price that I'm willing to pay. And if it means that you miss Wimbledon this year, again, that's a price you're willing to pay? Yes. Why, Novak? Why? Why Because the principles of uh, Decision-making on my body uh, are more important than any title or anything else I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be in tune with my body um, As much as I possibly can. What do you say directly to anti-vaccination campaigners around the world who proudly declare? Novak Djokovic is one of us I say that everyone has the right to, to choose to act or say whatever they feel is appropriate for them And I have never said that I'm part of that movement. You know, no one in the whole process during uh, Australian saga has asked me on my stance or my opinion on vaccination. No one. So I could not really express, you know, what I feel and where my stance is, neither in the legal process, neither... Outside, so it's it's really unfortunate that there has been this kind of misconception and wrong conclusion that has been made uh, around the world, uh, based based upon you know something that I completely disagree with.
1: Man, I'll tell you, I I don't think I could keep myself from respecting him if I were consciously do not respect, do not respect Novak Djokovic because the guy is absolutely doing what he needs to do. Uh, Well, you heard it yourself. I mean, this guy is the number one tennis player in the world. He is willing to miss the opportunity to stand atop tennis, you know, perhaps for, you know, the foreseeable future as the greatest of the great, because he will not give up his principles. And it's the principle of decision-making for your own body. That's a pretty high principle. I wonder if we sell ourselves short for for far lesser things, you know. In the case, well, it's just more convenient. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to get into it with the flight attendant, so I'll just do whatever they say. And that's not to say, you notice how he was not confrontational; he didn't become adversarial or or in any way uh, antagonistic toward his interviewer, who was, you know, you could see the exasperation in the interviewer. Why, Joe? Why Novak? Why would you do this? Why? Okay, this is a perfect example of someone who is willing to suffer for the sake of righteousness. Now, I happen to think he's right. I think, you know, in, especially in the sense that your personal bodily autonomy is extremely essential. Because without it, look, if, if just humor me on this for a second. if If someone can make the case, well, really you don't have bodily autonomy when we're dealing with germs... Then essentially, we have all just become converted into the property of whomever determines which germs need to be. We need, we all need to be protected from. It doesn't work that way. And you know, fame and fortune; those are significant enticements to a lot of people. I mean, who wouldn't uh, go the extra mile or you know give up a little something in order to to be recognized as the greatest? And all, this, all the accoutrements of success that come along with it. How powerful is it to see this young man who was ejected from Australia last month after the Australian Minister for Immigration said that uh, his ongoing presence in Australia may lead to an increase in anti-vaccination sentiment generated in the Australian community? Well, of course it might. Not because he's out there, you know, stumping for the idea that nobody should be vaccinated. That's not what he's doing. But he's showing by example that a person can stand up and be courageous and do the right thing in the face of immense pressure. In fact, Australian Minister for Immigration Alex Hawke said, you know, they were concerned that it would lead to an increase in civil unrest of the kind previously experienced in Australia with rallies and protests, which themselves may be a source of community transmission. Oh, they're a source of transmission, buddy. But it ain't the coronavirus that you're worried about. It's the transmission of courage. It's the transmission of belief that, you know what? If he can stand up for himself, then I can stand up for myself. That's the contagion that they're trying to contain right now and to, you know, immunize people against. No, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. You know, let's make an example of this person. Let's make an example of that person. For crying out loud, Joe Rogan, why is he targeted for destruction right now? It isn't because he has said things that some have construed as racist. It isn't because he's a source of misinformation. It's because he's allowed people to speak on his program who have offered a viewpoint that is very reasonable and it's an alternative to the, nope, 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 the science has spoken, everybody shut up, fall in line and do exactly what we tell you. Now look, you may not think of yourself as on the same page level as Joe Rogan or Novak Djokovic or or anybody else. But if I could persuade you of anything, I want you to understand that every single one of us, no matter how modest you are, no matter how humble you feel, every single one of us has impact on the world and the people around us. And even the small ways that we have impact really matter. We just don't see it at the moment. So my plea to you is be true to yourself. Be willing to suffer for righteousness' sake. It will work out in the end, but most importantly, you will have learned to trust yourself.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Quick shout-out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. You should know that uh, when you are in the market for a loan, whether it's a VA loan or a traditional loan, a reverse mortgage, maybe you just want to refinance your existing loan. Might want to get on that, by the way. Word on the street is interest rates are going to be going up at some point. You should talk to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. This is true if you are anywhere in the state of Utah. Heather has decades of experience in the lending industry. She clearly understands the ins and outs of what lenders and borrowers need. Most importantly, though, she's the one you want on your side to make things happen when time is of the essence. Now, You can click on the email link that I provide in my show notes. You can call her at 435-703-4522. If you're in St. George, go to 619 South Bluff Street. That's where you'll find her office. Heather's NMLS ID is 715 386 And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So I'm going to give you another example now of what real courage looks like in our time. Now, like a lot of people, I had never heard of Jennifer Say up until a couple of days ago. But her story is one that uh, I think is worth consideration. She was Levi's brand president, but she had to quit in order to be free to speak. In fact, she turned down a million-dollar severance pay because she knew that if she took it, it would come with a non-disclosure agreement, and she would have to shut up about why she would left her job. Could you turn down a million bucks? She says, when I traveled to Moscow in 1986, I, bought, I brought 10 pairs of Levi 501s in my bag. I was a 17-year-old gymnast, the reigning world champion. I was going to the Soviet Union to compete in the Goodwill Games, kind of a rogue Olympic Olympics-level competition orchestrated by CNN founder Ted Turner while the Soviet Union and the U.S. were boycotting each other. Now, she says the jeans were for bartering Lycra. The Russian leotards represented tautness, prestige, discipline, but they clamored for my denim and all that it represented, American ruggedness, freedom, individualism. And she says, I loved wearing Levi's. I'd worn them as long as I could remember. But if you had told me back then that I'd one day become the president of the brand, I would never have believed you. If you told me that after achieving all that, after spending almost my entire career at one company, that I would resign from it, I think you were really crazy. But she says, today I'm doing just that. Why? Because after all these years, the company I love has lost sight of the values that made people everywhere, including those gymnasts in the former Soviet Union, want to wear Levi's. Now she walks through her, her tenure at Levi's, which started as an assistant marketing manager in 1999, a few months after her 30th birthday. But as the years passed, she says, I saw the company through every trend. She was the marketing director for the U.S. by the time skinny jeans had become the rage. She was the chief marketing officer when high waists came into vogue. And eventually she became the global brand president of, try that again, the global brand president in 2020, the first woman to hold, to hold this post. And she says, over my two decades at Levi's, I got married, I had two kids, I got divorced, I had two more kids, I got married again. But the company, she says, has been the most consistent thing in my life. And until recently, I've always felt encouraged to bring my full self to work, including my political advocacy. Now, she says that, at, that advocacy has always focused on kids. In 2008, when she was vice president of marketing, she published a memoir about her time as an elite gymnast that focused on the dark side of the sport, specifically the degradation of children. And the gymnastics community threatened her with legal action and violence. Former competitors, teammates, and coaches dismissed her story as that of a bitter loser just trying to make a buck. They called her a grifter and a liar. But she says, Levi stood by me. More than that, they embraced me as a hero. But she says, things changed when COVID hit. Early on in the pandemic, I publicly questioned whether schools had to be shut down. This didn't seem controversial at all to me. She says, I felt, and I still do, that the draconian policies would cause the most harm to those least at risk. And the burden would fall heaviest on disadvantaged kids in public schools who need the safety and routine of school the most. So she wrote op-eds, she appeared on local news shows, attended meetings with the mayor's office, organized rallies, and pleaded on social media to get the schools open. And she was condemned for speaking out. This time, though, she was called a racist. A strange accusation given that she has two black sons. A eugenist and a QAnon conspiracy theorist. Interesting. But she says in summer of 2020, I finally got the call. You know, when you speak, you speak on behalf of the company. Our head of corporate communications told me, urging me to pipe down. She responded, my title is not in my Twitter bio. I'm speaking as a public school mom of four kids. But she says the calls kept coming from legal, from HR, from a board member, and finally, from her boss, the CEO of the company. Now, she says, I explained why I felt so strongly about the issue, citing data on the safety of schools and the harms caused by virtual learning. And while they didn't try to muzzle me outright, I was told repeatedly to think about what I was saying. Meantime, colleagues posted nonstop about the need to oust Trump in the November election. She says, I also shared my support for Elizabeth Warren in the Democratic primary and my great sadness when the, about the racially instigated murders of Ahmad Arbery, and, Arbery rather, and George Floyd. No one at the company objected to any of that. Then, in October 2020, when it was clear that public schools were not going to open that fall, I proposed to the company leadership that we weigh in on the topic of school closures in our city. San Francisco. We often take a stand on political issues that impact our employees. We've spoken out on gay rights, voting rights, gun safety, and more. This time was different. Their response was, we don't weigh in on hyper-local issues like this. And she says, I was told there's also a lot of potential negatives if we speak up strongly, starting with the numerous execs who have kids in private schools in the city. But she refused to stop talking. She kept calling out hypocritical and unproven policies. She met with the mayor's office and eventually uprooted her entire life in California. She'd lived there for over 30 years and moved her family to Denver so that her kindergartner could finally experience real school. And she says we were able to secure a spot for him in a dual language immersion Spanish English public school like the one he was supposed to be attending in San Francisco. Now, the national media picked up on her story. She was asked to go on Laura Ingram's show on Fox News. Well, that appearance was the last straw. The comments from Levi's employees picked up about me being anti-science, about me being anti-fat. She'd apparently retweeted a study showing a correlation between obesity and poor health outcomes. About me being anti-trans, because she tweeted we shouldn't ditch Mother's Day for birthing People's Day because it left out adoptive and stepmoms. And about me being racist, because San Francisco's public school system was filled with black and brown kids, and apparently I didn't care if they died. They also castigated me for my husband's COVID views as if I, his wife, were responsible for things he said on social media. She says, all this drama took place at our regular town halls, a company-wide meeting I'd looked forward to but now dreaded. Meantime, the head of diversity, equity, and inclusion at Levi asked that she do an apology tour. She was told the main complaint was that I was not a friend of the black community at Levi's. I was told to say that I'm an imperfect ally, which, by the way, she refused. Well, in fall of 2021, during a dinner with the CEO, she was told that she was on track to become the next CEO of Levi's. The stock price had doubled under her leadership. Revenue had returned to pre-pandemic levels. The only thing standing in my way, he said, was me. All I had to do was stop talking about the school thing. But she says the attacks would not stop. Anonymous trolls on Twitter, some with nearly half a million followers, said people should boycott Levi's until I'd been fired. So did some of her old gymnastics fans. They called the company's ethic hotline and they sent emails. Every day, a dossier of her tweets and all of her her online interactions were sent to the CEO by the head of corporate communications. At one meeting of the executive leadership team, the CEO made an offhand remark that I was acting like Donald Trump. She says, I felt embarrassed and turned my camera off to collect myself. In the last month, she says, the CEO told me that it was untenable for me to stay. I was offered a $1 million severance package, but I knew I'd have to sign a nondisclosure agreement about why I'd been pushed out. Now, she says, the money would be very nice, but I just can't do it. Sorry, Levi's. I never set out to be a contrarian. I don't like to fight. I love Levi's and its place in the American heritage as a purveyor of sturdy pants for hardworking, daring people who moved west and dreamed of gold buried in the dirt. She says, I'd like to think that many of my now former colleagues know this is wrong. I like to think that they stayed silent because they feared losing their standing at work or incurring the wrath of the mob. And she says, I hope in time they'll acknowledge as much. She says, I will always wear my old 501s, but today... I'm trading in my job at Levi's. In return, I get to keep my voice. That is an example of someone who is willing to suffer for her beliefs. And it's funny, I posted this on Facebook, and uh, immediately one of the questions was, well, uh, you know, what are her views? she liberal or conservative? Does it really matter? The bottom line is she is willing to pass up a lot of money and a lot of opportunity for the sake of being true to herself. That's the real lesson. And it's something every one of us needs to sort out sooner than later.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with Destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is the Brian
1: Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This program is not about telling you what to think, nor is it to feed your fears or feed your anger. Although there are a lot of media outlets and personalities out there who will do exactly that. All I'm asking is consider some of the things that I share with you and you make up your own mind. My goal is to help everybody think as clearly and independently as possible, which means necessarily you're going to disagree with me probably on a lot of things. I'm okay with that. Doesn't bother me one whit. And if it's uh, if it's something that you can live with, let's at least, uh, let's consider some of the things going on around us and most importantly consider who we are, what we stand for, how can we impact the world around us. Our program is brought to you by MonticelloCollege.org, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, sewing and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Also, LifesavingFood.com. and There's a link in my show notes at TheBrianHydeShow.com. I'm watching with great interest what's happening in Canada. Holy cow. There's uh, there's definitely um I don't know what what to call it. There's there we were we are building toward a crescendo. I don't know how it's going to go down, but Canada's political class seems to be rolling the dice on their current clampdown on truckers and others seeking relief from government oppression. Tim O'Brien has a very timely lesson for those uh, Canadian leaders regarding Newton The third law of motion, and Canadian truckers. O'Brien says Sir Isaac Newton published his laws of motion in 1687, the third of which states for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction. This law is the foundation of rocket science, where engines must fire and burn fuel that accelerates from the rear of the craft. This causes a force in the opposite direction to push the rocket forward. Dribble a basketball. Same thing. The harder and faster you push down on the ball, the harder and faster it will bounce back up. In its own way, Newton's law applies to the trucker protests in Canada and elsewhere in the world. It seems that in countries where the pressure was applied the strongest and for a longer period of time has triggered a proportional response. So governments in Canada, New Zealand and Australia have been three of the worst offenders when it comes to attacking citizens' basic liberties. Now, to be sure, while most countries in the world have experienced varying degrees of restrictions, Canada has created one of the most potent cocktails of lockdowns, mask requirements, social distancing requirements, vaccine mandates, vaccine passport mandates, travel restrictions, contact tracing, quarantining, surveillance and policing. That's a mouthful. So how bad is it? O'Brien says Canada notoriously has become one of the first to take steps towards building COVID camps. The Canadian government announced last summer it was funding the construction of four isolation sites where people who have COVID-19 or have been exposed to it access safe isolation accommodations to keep themselves and their communities safe. Translation, the government is building camps where people who test positive can be coerced into voluntarily leaving their own homes and placed in sites under lock and key until they check after being deemed by the government no longer a threat to public health and safety. Australia did much the same as Canada, only at times harder with even more menacing rhetoric. In fact, the COVID camps in Australia are already operational. And the small island nation of New Zealand, with its population of 5.1 million, did its very best to keep up in the totalitarian spirit. Add other countries to the list of COVID oppressors, and you'll see that worldwide pressure is mounting to set up that equal and opposite reaction in Israel, Spain, France, Germany, Austria, and elsewhere. So fed up with Canada's oppressive restrictions, Canadian truckers and farmers reached a breaking point of sorts. But instead of breaking, they decided to peacefully push back against all the coercion and pressure they were receiving from the Canadian government. Starting on January 22nd of 2022, hundreds of trucks and other vehicles formed what became known as the Freedom Convoy, which traveled through several Canadian provinces, arriving at the nation's capital of Ottawa on January 29th. The convoy was joined by farmers from throughout the country and thousands and thousands of pedestrian protesters. Now, while the tone of the protests is generally upbeat... The protesters have made it clear to their government, no more vaccine mandates, no more restrictions, they're done. And what's made the trucker protests unique is that through the sheer size of their vehicles, their numbers, the amount of support they've received, and to some extent their working class grit, they've been practically immovable. In a communication sense, they've never deviated from the message. They've kept it peaceful and generally positive. This has Prime Minister Justin Trudeau scared. He wants protesters to self-implode. He wants them to make a mistake so he can paint them as violent or radical. And his latest step in a game of chicken with the Freedom Convoy came on Monday when he gave himself emergency powers to resolve the situation his way. Now what this means remains to be seen, but for at least 30 days, all options are on the table for Trudeau, who has yet to do the one thing the protesters want him to do, listen, Instead, he seems prepared to ratchet up the pressure, which, according to Newton's third law, is almost guaranteed to force an equal and opposite reaction. Now, Maybe that's what he wants. Maybe that's the excuse he needs to become the totalitarian he's already accused of being. Trucker protests are happening all around the world, inspired by Canada's Freedom Convoy. All of that collective pressure applied to the populace is creating a pent-up global energy that could push back in a bigger way than the elites may realize. I mean, you're not hearing much about this in the news, but there have been huge protests in Australia, France, Israel, Spain, and other places. The one thing that all these countries have in common is that the pressure on citizens was applied through centralized authority at the national level. Now, the U.S. is more fragmented due to state powers, and American living in Florida experiences almost no COVID restrictions while one living in New York City can't go about any sort of normal routine without factoring in things such as vaccine passports and other restrictions. The pressure from the government to America's citizens is not being applied evenly from coast to coast, which makes the notion of equal and opposite reaction on a national level less likely. All this, however, is enough to make any student of history or physics wonder if the pandemic's orchestrators have truly thought this thing through. One way or another, This is the year we will find out. So says Tim O'Brien. Yeah, I don't know how it's going to shake out. I know every person that I talk to, I catch up with old friends, and one of the first things they want to ask, hey, what do you think about what's going on in in, uh, Canada? And I'm watching it with great interest, too. I'm praying for the safety of those truckers and others. And, you know, there's, this is to me the, epitome of the parasitic nature of government. You know, the police are gathering names, they're gathering faces, they're trying to get license plates and they're going to, we're going to come back and we're going to make every one of you guys pay. They actually went out, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police went and disabled, meaning they vandalized, flattened tires, cut wires on excavators that were just sitting there on somebody's property. They weren't being used in any protest, but well, there's concern that they might be at some point. So they went and, and they ruined somebody's property. Now, I'm just asking you, from a moral standpoint, how can that be justified? Where does someone get the moral authority to go destroy someone's property without due process on the fear that, well, it might be used in a protest at some point? I mean, that's right up there with we had to destroy the village in order to save it kind of thinking. I'm very grateful to see the examples that have been set by those uh, those Freedom Convoy truckers. I'm grateful for the people who have supported them. And in a way, this is kind of a backwards compliment, I'm grateful that the, the leaders who have the real totalitarian streak and that controlling nature have decided to show their true colors. I think they're, they're scared, and they probably have good reason to be. Not because the truckers are violent, unreasonable people, but because these leaders are facing, what is it called? It's a cascade of um, loss of confidence. The public doesn't believe in them anymore. Their legitimacy is crumbling, and they only have power so long as people believe they have power. When the public says, you know, what you say is irrelevant, we're not going to do it. Sorry, you're just a frustrated man, impotently wag- wagging his finger in the wind. You will do what I say. Well, keep your eyes on this. As goes Canada, so goes the world. That could be for good or for bad. I don't think if if you see any kind of violence ensue, I'm ninety nine percent sure it is not going to ensue because you know the truckers finally just had enough and decided to start lashing out at uh, you know whoever was around them. It's going to be the state which will escalate to the point of violence. And if anyone tries to protect themselves or defend themselves, well, see, we had to do this. Classic bully moves. But I think these leaders are flirting with uh, their own Ceausescu moments if they're not careful. They really should study a little bit of physics.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Hey, if you haven't subscribed to my show notes, I'd like to just put a little shameless plug in here and tell you they are absolutely free of charge. Just go to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. You can click on the subscribe button, and I will drop a copy of these into your email inbox each day that I do the program. Very, very simple. It just costs you an email address, which I will not share or sell to anybody else. And it's a great way to take a deeper dive into these topics because I have links within those links. You'll find – and you'll also see that oftentimes there are stories that I don't have time to get to because um, I'm limited in terms of, you know, how long I'm I'm actually, you know, doing this on the air. But I try to include things that will – help you better understand what's going on, what's at stake. This is not uh, soaked in partisan politics. These are people who think beyond bumper sticker slogans and actually have, I think, some really good insights to offer. Isn't it ironic, by the way, that, uh, you know, for all the people who've been out there for years saying, workers of the world unite, now they're really upset. The left is furious that the workers of the world are uniting and it's not for the cause of communism. (laughs) <laughs> they're they're actually uniting for the cause of uh, leave us alone, let us be free, <laughs> excuse me, and let us do with our lives as we wish. Got a great article here from Adam Mill published on americangreatness.com, amgreatness.com, why they're so afraid of the truckers. And the subtitle here is when real labor awakens to the true parasitic nature of the left, the whole system comes crashing down. Adam Mill starts with a uh, quote from Soviet Politburo member Nikolai Tikhonov. Nonetheless, we will still need to react, and by that I mean react concretely, to the stunts of hooligan elements now active in Poland, whom the government has not taken any measures to combat. What's going on there now is they're defacing the monuments of our soldiers. They're insulting the Soviet Union in every possible manner. In other words, they're mocking us. This is what Nikolai Tikhonov exclaimed during a September 1981 debate over how to respond to the strikes and headline-grabbing protests by the Polish Union, Solidarity. Now, another Politburo member suggested using the media to smear the independent Polish Union to win the public relations battle. Both in Pravda and in other newspapers, we must organize statements of this sort. Another warned that the workers' revolt might spread thus challenging the legitimacy of a system that appropriated the industrial worker's hammer crossed with the agricultural worker's scythe. Solidarity has decided not to confine itself solely to Poland. It is attempting to impose its subversive ideas on neighboring states and to interfere in their internal affairs. He added a smear familiar to today's ears. This is just what fascists do in creating brigades of stormtroopers. Now, the Soviet leaders faulted inadequate indoctrination, decrying the lack of training in Marxist-Leninist sciences is secondary in secondary school is taking its toll. With regard to the mass media, their current status does not correspond to what is needed. The party is taking steps to restore order and reestablish control, but even that will still leave things far from normal. Ideological erosion stemming from the decline of party educational work among the masses and the neglect of this work in the mass media... Define the current situation in Poland. Well, then like now, academics and media were a tool of first resort to suppress and smear political opposition. In September 1981, the Soviet Union seemed an uncrackable monolith. On its frontiers stood a NATO force that would last only a few weeks were a conventional war to break out. The Soviets could could rely upon apologists in Western academia and the media to amplify their propaganda and stifle voices demanding freedom. Yet the opposition of a labor union to Soviet communism powerfully undermined its claim to legitimacy. The very symbol of that communism, the intersection of a hammer and sickle, implicitly claimed the entire Soviet system was just one large pro-workers' union. We remember that solidarity was the exception to the general rule that the Central Authority controlled all unions in the Soviet Empire. We're reminded that when we see modern American unions paradoxically support open border-style immigration and slavishly support the democratic agenda. Now in 1981, the future Prime Minister of Canada had not yet turned 10 years old and was not yet designated Canada's sexiest man alive. Yet there are clues that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau might have heard and absorbed Soviet anti-solidarity propaganda. In response to the 2022 truckers' convoy, Trudeau plagiarized the Soviets, claiming, "We won't give unto the, give in to those who fly racist flags. We won't cave to those who engage in vandalism or dishonor the memory of our veterans." The media, perhaps responding to a Soviet-style call to organize. Statements of this sort wrote images shared on social media during the weekend showed protesters waving flags with swastikas on them, as well as U.S. Confederate flags, which civil rights groups say is a symbol of white supremacy. Claims linking the Canadian truckers convoy to Nazis appeared in The Guardian, Vox, NPR, The Atlantic, BBC, the ironically named Independent, NBC, Reuters, Washington Post, The New York Times and many more. Each of those 10 sources contains a line similar to this. The truckers have been joined by various groups, including some displaying Nazi symbols and damaging public monuments. But not one contained a picture or video to support the smear. The smears remind us of the recent effort to associate the Republican candidate for governor in Virginia with fascists. In that incident, anti-Republican activists, including the Lincoln Project, donned costumes to pose as racist supporters of the candidate. We're also reminded of the recent criminal conviction of Josie Smollett for staging a fake hate crime to smear Trump supporters. And we're reminded of the many successful lawsuits by Nick Sandman, who the media falsely accused of hate crimes. A more responsible media would have provided proof before coordinating yet another smear against a political movement. Adam Mill says, you know, in 1981, the Soviets seemed invincible. Yet their power was fragile, vulnerable to a single fissure of courage that started in Poland. That crack lengthened and spread until the entire system crumbled. It must have seemed impossible to defeat an ideology that controlled every institution, the press, the education system, the military, etc. Yet without firing a shot, a courageous protest in Poland did just that. Adam Mill says, The Soviet Union, like modern leftism today, <clears throat> appropriates and exploits the struggle of ordinary people while simultaneously making things worse for them. Their soft hands and arrogance set them apart from their supposed clients in the real world. Their only skill is to feast upon the fruits of other people's labor. When real labor awakens to the true parasitic nature of the left, the whole system comes crashing down. No wonder they're so afraid. That's pretty good to uh, take on this. And it's probably one of the reasons why you see those in power reacting the way that they are. Now, I have heard this. I can't confirm it. So, you know, you'll have to consider this hearsay. But my understanding is that Justin Trudeau turned to the Biden White House for advice on how should we handle this truckers protest. And I don't for a minute believe that Joe Biden is the one calling the shots. But whoever is operating Biden's puppet strings, whether that's Obama or whomever, it appears their advice was you've got to be tough. You've got to be firm. You've got to escalate. You've got to clamp down. You've got to show these people who's boss and remind the public why they need us. I don't think it's working. I think it's gone far beyond just the truckers. And just hypothetically, for the sake of argument, let's say that, uh, okay, so we arrest all the truckers, we haul off all of their trucks, okay, that's tens of thousands of vehicles, who gets to deliver the goods that need to be delivered, keeping in mind that every single thing that lands on a store shelf or every single bit of food that comes to a restaurant arrives on a truck, Yep, I think the the governments, in this case, are tangling with the wrong people. They're tangling with people who hold real power, and that is the power of commerce. I guess we're going to see how it all shakes out.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The
1: Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Just want to give a little shout out here to sewingandquiltingcenter.com. If you live in or around the St. George, Utah area, you are so blessed to have a resource like Sewing and Quilting Center available and, and right there at your fingertips. Now, this is a business that's been a family-owned business in operation. I think it was started in 1984, so it's been in operation for quite some time here. And it's only changed hands three times over that time period. Right now, Teresa and Eric Alsop are the owners. Wonderful people, longtime members of the community. But I want you to understand, when it comes to sewing, when it comes to embroidery, when it comes to long-arm quilting, they are the place to go not only to get the machines, the supplies, the fabric, everything you need to indulge in and to engage in these these kinds of projects, but they also service everything that they sell. And they can train you how to use your sewing machine, how to use your long-arm quilter, how to use your embroidery machine. They clean and service most brands of sewing, embroidery, and long-arm machines, so even if it's something you didn't buy from them but it needs to be fixed, they know how to do it click on the link that I provide in my show notes at the Brian Hyde show.com and I think you'll be really happy that you did. You know, part of being a wrong thinker means a willingness to question the official story rather than trust that the ruling class is looking out for our interests. I suspect you're probably a bit of a skeptic in that regard, so that's that's good. Keep that healthy sense of skepticism. Caitlin Johnstone actually did a recent uh, essay called The Official Story, and she does a masterful job of explaining what the official story is and why it is so so often disconnected from reality. She says, The official story is that we live in a free democracy where our teachers tell us the truth about our nation, our government, and our world when we are children, and the free press continue telling us the truth about our nation, government, and the world when we're grown. And then every few years we have free and fair elections in which we use this truthful information to make decisions about which politicians and which policies to vote for. And it's only by pure coincidence that what we vote for is just, it just so happens to benefit the most wealthy and powerful people on the planet. In the official story, she says the democratic process consistently fails to let us progress beyond a status quo of profound inequality, injustice, oppression, exploitation, war, and ecocide, because that's simply how people are voting in their free and fair elections. The official story maintains that this occurs because the populations of all free democracies coincidentally happen to be organically divided into two ideologically opposed camps of equal size, creating a political deadlock, which just so happens to benefit the people who profound from, well, who profit from profound inequality, in injustice, oppression, exploitation, war, and ecocide? Per the official story, society is driven by the majority, and is only an immensely by an and it is only by an immensely widespread and startlingly consistent series of coincidences that society remains perpetually shaped in a way that benefits a small minority of rich and powerful individuals. Now, these are some pretty strange coincidences you might find yourself thinking. What are the odds that a society which is driven by the will of the people would so consistently benefit a small minority of rich and powerful individuals to the disadvantage of the voting majority across so many separate nations from generation to generation for many decades without ever deviating from this pattern? Seems like the rich and the powerful must be tipping the scales in their favor somehow. Well, the official story holds that you are a crazy conspiracy theorist if you, th- if you say this, and you should be shunned and denied any platform from which to speak to a large number of people. The official story is that this, si- this sort of society, which only serves the worst people in the world by pure coincidence, is so wonderful that it needs to be exported to every corner of the earth. Also, by pure coincidence, all of the nations which most urgently need freedom and democracy always just so happen to occupy land of immense geostrategic importance for planetary domination and resource control. In the official story, the United States and its allies are always on the right side of every international conflict. And it's only by a series of unfortunate accidents and intelligence blunders that this alliance is killing far more people with military violence and starvation sanctions than any other power structure in today's world. The news media feed us accurate information about each and every one of these conflicts, explaining truthfully why each country's government needs to be toppled to free the people of that nation. And it's only by coincidence that we suddenly stop getting news reports about how those people are doing once they have been liberated from their tyrannical oppressors. The official story tells us that while the U.S. might not always make perfect foreign policy decisions, it's better to have them leading the free world than to risk some tyrannical regime like Russia or China taking over. Now, if the U.S. wasn't constantly invading countries and dropping bombs and staging coups and starving civilians and fomenting unrest and arming terrorists and torturing people and escalating Cold War aggressions against nuclear armed nations, well, the world could find itself ruled by bad guys. Caitlin Johnstone says the official story protects the official story. Anyone who disputes any part of the official story is peddling misinformation or is a Russian propagandist or is an anti-Semite or is a dangerous extremist or is mentally ill or whatever they need to be to ensure that they are never taken seriously by anyone and silenced on social media and are never given a mainstream audience. Any dissent from the official story is evidence that you must be prevented from interfering in the official story, according to the official story. She says in the official story, our world will be guided by this truth-based free and democratic status quo in a way which benefits all of humankind. If it seems like inequality is getting worse or governments are becoming more authoritarian or capitalism is becoming more exploitative or wars are getting out of control or the ecosystem is dying or we're hurtling toward nuclear war on multiple fronts, that's just your stupid brain trying to trick you. And you should stop listening to it immediately and reacquaint yourself with the official story. Here, here's some celebrity gossip. Did you see that Super Bowl ad? Come watch a movie on this streaming service. Take some time off, calm down, have a beer, and then plug your mind back into the official story. Just ignore the parts of yourself which find it intolerable. Only the official story is trustworthy. Only the official story has the answers. Block out all the other noise, jack your mind firmly into the matrix, and be the loving, loyal gear-turner you were born to be. That's pretty powerful stuff. I know some people might think, man, that I just feel like I got backhanded across the face. Well, I'm not saying that you deserve it because you're dumb or you're evil. I'm just going to say if that jolts you, maybe there's a reason for that. Maybe you are recognizing something doesn't quite add up with the way things are supposed to be. And this is, you know, the status quo is really this this is the best for everybody. I know we're supposed to believe it. But what do you do when some part of your soul is screaming out, this isn't right? You know, that's, that's the feeling of cognitive dissonance. Trying to hold two contradictory ideas simultaneously. And I say this with the greatest sympathy. There are a lot of people that are going through this right now. We're not all at the same stage, so don't have unrealistic expectations. Some of the people who are are just now waking up to what was actually foisted on us over the last couple of years via all the lockdowns and all the restrictions and the mask mandates and the vaccination mandates, there are a lot of people who are just finally starting to see their eyes come open. How difficult would it be? I'm just asking you, put yourself in their shoes for a moment. How difficult is it to realize You've been lied to. If you've ever been betrayed, you've ever had a, a spouse or a significant other who cheated on you, it's a horrible shock. And it makes you doubt everything that you knew. What else in my world is false? What else can't I trust? So it's no wonder that people shy away or they get defensive when these kind of things are brought up. All I'm suggesting is have a bit of empathy for the people who are finally starting to catch on Maybe it was fear, maybe some of them really were driven by a lust to control other people. I don't know, but when somebody's eyes start to open, I think we need to be as uh, as gentle as we can to welcome them to reality. Chances are very good if your eyes are open if or if you're uh, let me put it this way if your pronouns in your profile <laughs> if they are awake and concerned, you had a moment where you woke up and went, ooh, this isn't right. I can't reconcile what's happening and say that this is all okay. Do you remember how tough that was? Did you appreciate the people who rubbed your nose in it? Say you were wrong. You were stupid. You were fooled. Admit I'm right. Or did you uh, tend to gravitate towards the people who said, I know, it's hard, isn't it? Come on. Let's walk together and continue seeking after the truth. See, we all have choices to make. Let's help the ones who are starting to open their eyes.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I'm going to take just a moment here and I want to recognize a a good friend of mine who I understand um, tragically passed away earlier this week. You wouldn't know it if you saw a picture of me now, but uh, low, oh, what, about 20, 22, 23 years ago, or let me put it in this terms, 50 pounds ago, (laughs) I had a good friend who encouraged me to to begin training in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And I never became a you know martial arts superstar, but I I threw myself into the training and um, earned my blue belt, which uh, it, it took a lot of effort and it was it was very hard. It's uh, one of the most grueling kinds of uh, training I've ever done in my life, but man, was it good for me! And uh, and and I was very privileged to be friends with a guy by the name of Keith Owen. Keith was one of these guys who was really into he was into martial arts. I think he had a black belt in Kung Fu, you know, not long after he got out of high school. He was he was very skilled, but he was watching the UFC back when it, when it very first started. And he saw this tall, skinny Brazilian dude, Royce uh, Gracie, systematically choke and arm bar much bigger, much stronger opponents into submission. Just one after another after another. And he went, man, I want to learn about that. So Keith threw himself into learning about Gracie's style Brazilian jiu-jitsu. He became a, a professor of jiu-jitsu. Multiple, multiple black belt levels. I mean, he's he he was very legit. And I remember the early days when he was first starting to learn this. He encouraged me to get into it as a means of just getting in shape. I was starting a fitness uh, regimen with Patty Goey. Patty, got to tip my hat to you. What a, what a wonderful influence you were in my life as well. Keith got me started on this. He went on, uh, he, he was participated in law enforcement. He actually trained much of uh, law enforcement in the state of Idaho. Uh, he was the one of the instructors at Post who would teach officers, uh, you know, hand-to-hand skills. Very good at what he did. He was an instructor at a firearms training institute, just a, a larger-than-life figure, and and I, I want to just I want to give you this snapshot of Keith, possibly the finest teacher that I have ever encountered, and I mean that in every discipline that he was teaching, he just had a way of explaining the mechanics and 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 having fun with it. It wasn't like he was this hard-eyed, serious you know guy who never cracked a smile. One of the funniest people that I've ever known. But he was so good, and he touched so many people's lives, and and was renowned worldwide for his his Brazilian jiu-jitsu teaching as as well as his skills. Well, I saw a picture earlier this week. I think um, it was either Sunday or Monday. Um, there was a picture on Facebook of Keith with his uh, with his master, the the professor who had trained him, Pedro Sauer, and they were down in Brazil. Apparently, he was in Brazil training, and um, they were sitting in Master Helio Gracie's old car that uh, Pedro Sauer had purchased and and restored. And I thought, how cool. He is living such a great life. Well, I got word yesterday that uh, while there in in Brazil, Keith suffered a heart attack, and uh, apparently they got him to the hospital, but he, he passed away, died in the very same hospital that Helio Gracie passed away in some years ago. And I know for people who don't know him, it's, you know, this isn't going to make a lot of sense, but I am so proud to have counted Keith among my friends. Just, he, he could be the kindest person you ever met, but he also just, he was a no-nonsense, he'll tell it exactly as he sees it. And I love that about him. A true man among men. And I know for for any members of the Brazilian jiu-jitsu community who happen to hear this, uh, you'll probably recognize his name. Most people will. And it's sad to see someone, uh, you know, taken so soon. But I, I would feel amiss if I didn't recognize him and the profound influence that he had on me and so many others. So with that... I'm going to shift gears here. I want to just share a couple of excerpts from a a commentary that uh, has caught my eye earlier today. Now, look, geopolitics can be impossibly complicated. Having said that, the Z-Man has a great summary of the bigger picture of what's going on worldwide. And he also explains why reality always wins. He says one of the many excellent uses of reality is that it can be used to test ideological and political theories. No matter how good the idea seems in the lab, the only way to know if it'll work is to give it a go in the real world. The best example of this is the 70-year social experiment called communism. The acolytes of, uh, of Karl Marx tried to prove that the human condition was nothing more than a social construct. Now granted, reality can be a cruel master. No one really knows how many people Stalin murdered while getting the experiment going. The best guess is tens of millions died under Soviet communism. Then you have the Asian experience. The Black Book of Communism puts the number at 94 million. It's a good reminder that reality can remain stubborn longer than ideologues can pile corpses. And it looks like the rulers of the global American empire are ready to put their favorite ideology to test in the real world. Multiculturalism is pretty much a religion with the ruling classes, despite the fact that most of them live like white nationalists. For them, diversity is our strength is not just a marketing slogan. They really think that diversity in all its forms is the key to creating a global paradise. So much, in fact, that the United States military is making diversity its number one priority up and down the chain of command. Pedro Gonzalez reports in Chronicles that Bishop Garrison, senior advisor to the Secretary of Defense, is pushing ahead with critical race theory and a diversity, inclusion, and equity program to make the military the most diverse institution on the earth. They will be the rainbow warriors of the glorious future, comrades. As opposed to the university or even corporate America, the military is an unforgiving place when it comes to theory and practice. The point of the military, of course, is to project the power of the ruling class. It is the physical manifestation of ruling class authority and power. If it cannot do that, then the ruling class has a serious problem. So this commitment to diversity is quite a gamble. The global American empire needs the military to maintain itself. Adding to this, of course, is the looming confrontations with Russia and China at the edges of the empire. Joe Biden's been trying to start a war with Russia over Ukraine, which means the U.S. military would face its toughest test in generations. The Russians are tough and smart. They're not Afghan goat herds or desert nomads, both of whom prove to be too much for the American military to handle in the long run. And, of course, there's China. They would like to recover Taiwan and become the regional hegemon. So they keep testing American resolve. And this is where things get interesting with regards to the religion of multiculturalism. A declassified Pentagon report says the Chinese are racists. Well, that's right. They are racists. In the language of the new religion, this means the Chinese do not embrace multiculturalism. Russia suffers the same sin regarding sexual deviance, deviancy. Now, most already know that the Russians are no fans of the various sexual fetishes that have been sacralized in the West. They oppose gay marriage. They oppose the indoctrination of children into the gay lifestyle. Washington hates this, which is why they display rainbow flags at the embassy in Moscow the Russians are not big fans of cross-dressers or other exotic inventions of multiculturalism. Now, the Chinese, on the other hand, take this a step further. On page 90 of that Pentagon report, Chinese intellectual Liang Qichao is quoted as saying, someday in the 20th century, we the Chinese will be the most powerful race on earth. And the report goes on to describe how Chinese racial purity is at the center of the party elite's worldview. This means that we have two opposing ideologies that will now be tested on the battlefield of reality. And, by the way, this war will not only be fought by militaries, but by all the institutions of society. America's sure that the Rainbow Warriors will not only best racist on the battlefield, but in all other areas. In that Pentagon report, they claim that racism is what will eventually be the downfall of China. Now, for their part, the Z-Man says Russia and Chinese are taking exact opposite views. They think multiculturalism is turning America into a battlefield of alien cultures and races, which will pull the empire apart. They suspect that men in dresses do not make the best soldiers and that girls are not the best diplomats and strategists. The geographically challenged Liz Truss would seem to confirm that opinion. So, if multiculturalism prevails, it means the Russians and the Chinese survived communism only to be wiped out by men in drag waving rainbow flags. If racism prevails... It means America won the Cold War only to lose to her former enemies. From a certain distance, you can't help but look at this and see that the universe has a sense of humor. But the Z-Man says in the end, it is wise to bet on reality. The ideologues of the new religion of multiculturalism are not much different from their predecessors. They are sure that reality can be whipped with the right amount of enthusiasm. And they will come to learn, like their current opponents, that reality is that thing that does not go away when you stop believing in it. Reality is undefeated for a reason.
2: This is The Brian Hyde Show.